But my God, has 2021 been the craziest year for theatrical exhibition ever? With the AMC meme stuff in Cineplex, Cineworld, and the pandemic, I mean, this year's been nuts. This is the Box Office Podcast. I am Daniel Luria, the editorial director of Box Office Pro, the only publication in North America exclusively dedicated to covering the world of theatrical exhibition. Here this week, once again, with our co-host, Rebecca Pauly, the deputy editor at Box Office Pro. This week, we are going to be looking back at 2021, a wrap-up of a year in recovery for the cinema industry going over some of our favorite movies and movie-going moments of the year, as well as some of the top stories in a year really still marked by the COVID-19 pandemic. Before we get started, Rebecca, happy holidays. How, how's your uh, Christmas and New Year's break been going? Um, it's been going well. I, I was able to um, to fly home to North Carolina to see my family. But with airlines uh, canceling flights left and right due to Omicron, I don't really know when I'm going to be able to get back up to New York. But it's like mid-60s here in December, so I'm going to enjoy that while stay. it lasts. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, just stay. Are you kidding me? Mid-60s? Let's, let's trade that in. You've got an upgrade. Definitely enjoying uh, enjoying the weather, though not really loving the cause of why I might be here for a few days longer than I initially intended. You know, uh, we spoke about last week the effect that Omicron is having on the worldwide theatrical market. Unfortunately, we have seen some additional closures. So to date, what we are looking at is that the markets of the Netherlands, Belgium, and most recently within the last few days, Denmark, uh, cinemas are entirely closed. We're looking at regional closures throughout areas of Germany and then as well Canada. Uh, movie theaters in Quebec remain closed. And within a few days after that, movie theaters in British Columbia had to go down to a 50% capacity. We're seeing other, uh, other restrictions uh, throughout Europe, including uh, places like Slovakia, including uh, curfews in some parts of Spain. I hate to say it sounds like deja vu all over again, but it, but it really does feel like that. Gladly, these closures were not able to stem, I think, a, a pretty good tide of, of people going to the theaters, Daniel, over the all-important Christmas holiday, one of the biggest movie-going weekends of the year. What were we looking at in terms of, uh, in terms of box office over the holiday weekend? Well, let's start with a big milestone here that despite these restrictions all over the world that we're seeing, despite very understandable hesitation from parts of the audience that aren't comfortable in the middle of a variant to go back to the movies, we still have the first billion dollar earner at the global box office. That's right. Spider-Man No Way Home from Sony becoming the first title to hit $1 billion worldwide since the start of the pandemic. We also had a bit of an upset here between second and third place. Indeed, Daniel, the uh, fourth movie in the Matrix series, The Matrix Resurrections, um, many thought that that would land in second place. Certainly, that's a movie that's highly anticipated. Alas, it only made $22.5 million over the five-day holiday weekend, landing it in third place behind Sing 2, which made $41 million. It seemed like maybe a combination of the uh, less-than-positive reviews and the uh, day-and-date releases maybe making some people say, hey, I'm just going to watch it on my TV at home while eating leftover Christmas candy. 
I think that's a good point, Rebecca, as we see how these titles ended up on the marketplace here domestically. Looking at those SYNC 2 numbers, this is another bit of positive news. As we know, family titles have been a little bit slower to recover here in the marketplace in 2021 because of vaccine availability for this age range. The demographic data that we got from Universal reveals that 64% of the opening weekend audience were parents and children under the age of 12. That's a very good stat as we see more families getting more comfortable returning to theaters. I wonder how much of a trickle-down effect a movie like Spider-Man had last weekend. We know that's a cross-quadrant title. In letting families know, hey, I had a good, safe, fun time at the theaters. I'm going to go back to watch Sing 2. So a great bit of momentum for from Sing 2. And once again, we see Hispanic moviegoers over-indexing here on opening weekend with 39% of that opening weekend audience here in the United States coming from Hispanic ticket buyers. A great start forcing to, we got to look at that flip side, making nearly half as much money over the five day Christmas frame is the Matrix Resurrections. I did see this opening day on IMAX in a half empty auditorium. Unfortunately, it was a bit of a shift seeing the excitement from audiences over Spider-Man No Way Home to only days later seeing really a lackluster turnout for The Matrix Resurrections. Now, I think there are a couple of aspects to dig into this. Uh, first and foremost, this is an IP that debuted 20 years ago. In the interim, they've had two pretty bad sequels. There really hasn't been going too much else. There hasn't been really too much else going on with this title, although that nostalgia for the original film is still there, is still present. We all thought that maybe those audiences that saw this movie 20 years ago could come back. Some positive nostalgia for this title, but a lot of goodwill really might have been burned over this IP being dormant over the last 20 years, as opposed to Spider-Man that's been at the forefront of everyone's minds here with the Marvel Cinematic Universe. And these are essentially two very different movies. These are two very self-reflexive meta films that look at their own franchise, that look at their own history and are very playful with that history. The big difference being that Spider-Man No Way Home is a fan-oriented title and fans really responded to that. Whereas The Matrix Resurrections takes this glee in poking their fan base in the eye with the film itself. I really enjoyed that aspect of it. I thought the first hour of the film was very ambitious. Unfortunately, the rest of the film, I think, doesn't really get the execution down right, at least when it comes to a movie that has to tell a story, that has to have action set pieces. It, it Unfortunately, I don't think worked for me and a number of other people having seen the film. One thing that both those films, Matrix Resurrections and Spider-Man No Way Home, really had in the plus column is the fact that they felt new, they felt fresh. We had not been seeing the same clips, the same teasers, the same commercials for them uh, for going on two years at that point. Uh, the same could not be said for Disney 20th Century Studios release, The King's Man, which debuted almost to very little fanfare, or really, I would say, even very little notice to uh, 10 million over the five day weekend, landing it in four I, I forgot this came out. I forgot this it's was on the schedule. It's been delayed so many I'm not times. Lie. I, <laughs> I, 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 I mean, and it, it is a franchise. You know, it is a prequel to the, uh, I believe, two Kingsman movies at that point. Certainly movies that were popular when they when they came out, though not to the degree of a Spider-Man franchise or a Matrix. You know, I, I don't know what to say about this movie, really, except that it kind of came and went. And now I imagine very few people are going to be talking about it ever again.
Now, something that I think might have some legs here, despite opening right below the Kingsman, is a title from Lionsgate, American Underdog, about the story of this uh, NFL football player, Kurt Warner, an original IP that's meant to have a domestic audience opening in fourth place to 6.2 million from Lionsgate. And Daniel, yeah, I agree. I think that this one uh, could could really have some legs here, and it speaks to something that we've uh, we've talked about a lot in the past on this podcast, which is the need for diversity of titles. Um, American Underdog, if you can't necessarily call it a quote unquote faith based film, it definitely has those faith based elements. Uh, the creative team is active in the faith based world. Um, faith based, you know, audience goers know who these create. Well, they they know how to connect with that audience segment. It's people that know there's a massive audience segment out there. We saw it with the success of Fathom Events' uh, run of The Chosen in select cinemas. We know they turn out. You just have to be able to connect with them. You're right, Rebecca. I think the filmmaking team has that potential to make this a nice little sleeper hit during the holiday corridor. That is the the Irwin brothers. And in the same vein, though, definitely a different genre. Uh, Daniel, the Hindi sports drama 83, which is not really a film that was on my radar or that I'd heard of, uh, cracked the top 10 over the holiday weekend with 1.7 million from only 481 screens. You know, I'm here with my parents, of course, we're, you know, it's Christmas holiday. You're checking out movie time, seeing what's playing where. That was playing here at this, uh, you know, kind of smallish town in North Carolina. You know, you find these pockets where there are audience members who want to see this movie. You go with a niche, uh, a more niche uh, strategy than something that's just bam, putting the movie out to a ton of screens, and and you can really have a have a solid result from that. It's so great to see Rebecca when you have diverse films targeting a diverse audience hit specific locations around the country and do very well. Like you mentioned, this wasn't a film that wasn't on our radars, but it was great to see it connect with a $1 million plus debut nationwide from only 481 theaters, outperforming a lot of Hollywood movies, including Searchlight Pictures' sophomore frame for Nightmare Alley, which actually ranked below this title. On the specialty side, a couple of debuts and new performers the Pedro Almodovar film Parallel Mothers opening to $41,000 from three screens here in North America and having a very positive expansion going from six 70 millimeter engagements in LA and New York to a total of 786 screens in the United States and Canada. Licorice Pizza from Paul Thomas Anderson in its week five, cracking the top 10 with a $2.3 million take in that expansion. That's a $3.6 million domestic run for the title. United Artists, the distributor on the title saying that two thirds of the audience for this movie are between the ages of 18 to 34. So we're seeing younger audiences not only coming out to support the big superhero movies, but also showing up for specialty titles like Licorice Pizza, now that it's gone nationwide. I really enjoyed this movie when I saw it in one of these 70 millimeter screenings in New York City, Rebecca. I think it was one of my favorite uh, movies of the year. We have a number of titles that, that we really like. Let's use this as a good transition to talk about what some of our favorite movies of the year were. What's, what's on the top of your list that you've actually gotten to see so far? Well, you actually uh, mentioned one of them a minute ago. One of the favorite movies that I had this year is one, Daniel, that I actually uh, made a point of seeing because because you loved it so much. Uh, that being Pedro Almodovar's Parallel Mothers, really thought it was an exceptional film. 
glad that I saw it on the big screen uh, rather than on a screener. I really also loved another New York Film Festival release, uh, Paul Verhoeven's Benedetta. That's one that that did not find its audience, um, but you know what? It is no, no less weird and wild and wonderful <laughs> and funny. Yeah, Rebecca, I'm afraid that the movie with farting nuns in it wasn't a huge breakout hit at the box office, but as you mentioned, it doesn't take away any of its bonkers qualities that we've always come to love from Paul Verhoeven throughout the years, throughout the decades. And while we talk about our favorite movies of the year um, and this question of about theatrical exclusivity, I have to mention the tragedy of Macbeth from Cohen brother, Joel Cohen, being released in theaters exclusively for 20 days by Apple. I believe this is probably the biggest exclusivity window Apple is giving one of its releases and it's a title that I really, really liked having seen it at the New York Film Festival. The streamer actually going and creating a little bit of word of mouth buzz ahead of release by hosting, I think it was 12, was it 15, global IMAX screenings for free about a month ago. So people got to see this on the big screen, got to talk about it. It's a film I very much liked. It's definitely on the top of my list among the best of the year. My favorite thing to do, I'm a big proponent of the Movies By Yourself Club. Oh, that's a great club. I'll be out and about and I'll just see, oh, here's the IFC Center. I wonder what's playing. Oh, I'll go I'll go see that. I made a, a last minute decision to go to the opening night double feature um, that one of my one of the cinemas I really like in Brooklyn was holding on their on their first night but they were open since before the shutdown. Unfortunately, it was the night of a hurricane, so I almost uh, the, the, the flooding almost almost stranded me in Williamsburg overnight, and it was a kind of a hectic early morning. But I do not regret having gone to that opening night double feature because I had a very good time. D Daniel, what what, what were was you? in the double feature? That was uh, Polish director Andrzej Zulowski's The Devil and Ken Russell's The Devils. That's Ooh, funny. That's wow, funny, that's, right? That's a that's a solid that's one intense. two punch right there. And then uh, a few months later at the at the Metrograph, I did go out for a uh, for a rep screening of of Possession, also by Andrzej Zulowski. You know that Possession and and Benedetta for me, the movie going experience was was so valuable for those movies in particular for me because they are funny movies. <laughs> But they're funny if you're in an audience of people. You know, if you hear other, yeah, they're, they're, they're they are messed up things, and you well. you hear other people laughing, so you can kind of admit, ha ha, this is funny too. Like that kind of nervous laughter equation that comes out so well in those two movies. That if I'd just seen them on my sofa, it would not have been the same. They just don't land the same way. I totally agree with you. I think both comedy and horror have this great communal aspect to watching it with an audience. I know we were both. Uh, incredibly upset that we did not get the experience of seeing Barb and Star go to Vista Del Mar in theaters because that oh, is one of the best God. comedies of the last 10 years. <laughs> I absolutely adore that movie. I saw that with my wife. Unfortunately, on Hulu at home, we weren't able to catch that in the movies. It didn't get a theatrical rollout at all. That That's probably one of my biggest disappointments. Alamo screened it uh, a bit, but I believe it was when theaters in New York weren't open yet. So that... Okay, so we, we didn't even get didn't access get to that. Come on, so uh, Paramount, rep screenings of Barb and Star, I will go. The adult skewing comedy is an endangered species in Hollywood now. That's why I enjoyed that movie. Another movie I enjoyed in the same vein, though not as much, is uh, Don't Look Up from Adam McKay that came out from Netflix. It's in, in this genre of adult skewing titles that are funny, that you can see with an audience, that you can enjoy. Uh, of course, 
Don't Look Up, getting somewhat of a theatrical exclusivity window from Netflix. I know you loved Red Rocket. I mean, that was one, uh, another kind of adult skewing comedy from Sean Baker. You have a, a great interview with him in our Centennial issue where he talks about how adamant he was that he get theatrical exclusivity for this film, even though it's not some kind of big blockbuster concoction. That being said, one of my favorite movie-going experiences this year was something that went out day and date. I went to go see Dune on IMAX, and I think I said it on the podcast at the time, it is the best IMAX experience I have ever had. I made it a point to go see it at the theaters, even though I knew it was available at the home, and I didn't regret it for a second. So much so that after seeing it on IMAX, I was so impressed by the sound mix on the film itself that I paid an extra premium price ticket to go see it on Dolby Cinema so I could get that Dolby Atmos track so even when you have something that's available on day and date that doesn't have to be a death wish on a film, if you eventize the theatrical release well enough. And I think that's something that Denis Villeneuve was able to do really dating back from 2020 when he was adamant in the press that Dune was made to be experienced first and foremost in theaters. I think because of that advocacy of going to see this on the big screen, because he was so outspoken in a way that might have hurt him financially, I have to list Denis Villeneuve as one of the filmmakers of the year in 2021. And, and if we're looking back at the landmark releases of 2021, you know, I think it would be remiss of us not to mention some of these smaller films that, that really came out and surprised us. Um, with their box office halls. The ones that come to mind for me, uh, Daniel, are the Funimation uh, release Demon Slayer, um, an anime title, had record-breaking success overseas, record-breaking success in its home country of Japan, where it just broke a 17-year record for the highest-grossing uh, local title, came to the U.S., released theatrical by Funimation, which is mainly a streaming outfit, really shows how the kind of streaming and theatrical worlds don't necessarily have to fight with each other. Same is true of The Chosen, a faith-based title released by Fathom Events. Originally, it was a web series. You know, it has that streaming base. It got people who were interested in seeing it because of it being a streaming web series. And then Fathom announces they're, uh, they're releasing this film theatrically, and it just immediately breaks all their pre-sale records. It makes, uh, you know, just, just a ton of money, considering that it's a film really without any, you know, big known A-list stars. I, I, I think a lot of people, you know, maybe on the journalism side of this, of this industry, when they think about the success stories, they tend to think of the Spider-Man No Way Homes, the Dunes. But you can't just have an industry that relies solely on those tentpole titles. Demon Slayer and The Chosen are probably two of the biggest surprises at the box office in 2021. And they're movies that I think realized the potential that we've been talking about different sectors in this industry for a couple of years, but we hadn't seen realized. We knew that anime had a big fan base. I think Demon Slayer proved that you can tap into that audience at a big opening weekend level. And then more recently with The Chosen, We've seen now what a faith-based title can do and what event cinema programmed in a strategic way can accomplish when you engage with specific audience niches and segments. I completely agree those were among the biggest surprises at the box office in 2021. Unfortunately, we also have to talk about the biggest disappointments when we recap the year and the two titles that come to mind here, first and foremost, it's something that we've been talking about since this movie was bought at Sundance for a record $25 million by Apple, Coda. 
I mean, what the heck happened here? This is a movie that could have easily, easily broken through to a bigger audience, but it seemed like there was no interest to give this any life whatsoever in movie theaters. Uh, yeah, Daniel, and we heard in our uh, State of the Art House webinar that we uh, presented in collaboration with Spotlight Cinema Networks that there were theaters who asked, hey, can I screen this movie? And they were told, no, because you're not an essential market. Now, that doesn't mean that movies released exclusively to theaters are a guarantee either, as Steven Spielberg learned the hard way with the very disappointing returns from West Side Story, a movie that did connect with critics, but could not find its audience when it was released in early December. And, you know, it's, it's kind of a similar film, Daniel, that I have to probably pay is my biggest disappointment uh, of 2021. I know you didn't like the film. I really did. In the Heights, it was marketed as big, spectacular, visually splendid summer fun. See it in IMAX. I saw it in IMAX. It was great. And, and no one went out to see uh, this movie, really. As you say, Rebecca, are things exclusive to theaters? Are they day and date? Are they PVOD? That was just such a hot button topic in 2021. It was a huge contentious issue in 2020. How it evolves in 2022 is likely going to be one of the biggest stories of next year. But while we're talking about the big moments and news stories that define theatrical exhibition in 2021, we have to start with the economic lifeline that may have saved the domestic movie theater industry, SVOG. Can you go over what that impact was for movie theater operators? Because between us, Rebecca, I think 90% of the conversations I had with people in this industry, they all mentioned the work around getting those SVOG grants as integral in helping them through the pandemic closures. Yeah, it was, I mean, we've said this before, but I'll, I'll say it again. Hats off to NATO for the tireless work they did. It was a long road uh, to convince the federal government to, to really uh, give the uh, theatrical community a hand. And of course, these SVOG grants were available to most independent operators here in the United States, but were not available to publicly traded companies. And that's the other big news story of the year, or can we even call it a miracle Having covered this industry for over a decade now, I can tell you, Rebecca, this probably ties that Sony hack from a couple of years back as the weirdest thing that I can recall. AMC becoming a meme stock. AMC theaters going as low as, I believe, around $2 in the stock market during the height of the pandemic. A victim, really, I think, unfairly of, let's say, assumptions on the viability of the movie theater sector getting affected by something like MoviePass that came in out of left field with a terrible business plan, ended up impacting that stock price negatively. So many things, so many bad breaks that AMC got over the years on Wall Street. And then the biggest the deus ex machina of the year, <laughs> if not the decade. Reddit crypto bros. Reddit kid crypto bros. What are the ape army CEO oh, Aaron and now becoming a celebrity CEO? On I mean, Twitter, it, it seems like a dream. What happened here? And it's still happening, which I uh, definitely would not have predicted that, that this would still be ongoing. But I, I couldn't have predicted any of that at all. <laughs> Well, I think it's still happening because the company leaned into it. AMC Theater said, wait a minute, people want to buy our stock. 
this is not a bad thing. And the company very ripely decided to go front and center with this meme stock culture around it and embrace its retail investors. With Adam Aaron now being a celebrity CEO from our industry, that is something that I don't think any of us covering exhibition could have predicted at this time last year. I mean, now you're looking at, they have uh, Spider-Man NFTs, they have the AMC Investor Connect portal so that the individual retail investors who have purchased AMC stock can have that kind of their own club club within the uh, AMC universe. You have universe. dudes in gorilla suits showing up to the movie theater. It's a sliver of, in general, the need that movie theaters have, especially now, to connect to their audiences and to respond to what their audiences want rather than just saying, here are the big movies. Uh, we're playing them, so you should come see them. Especially now with more titles going day and date, audience members have options and movie theaters, I think, need to fight for their guests. Another example of one of the biggest stories in exhibition this year happened when one of the biggest movie stars in the world decided to sue its employers, the biggest movie studio in the world, to have her voice heard amidst this contentious battle over exclusivity and day and date. We have to bring this up as one of the biggest stories of the year when Scarlett Johansson sued Disney for taking Black Widow and opening it on PVOD on the same day as its theatrical debut, claiming that this cost her money financially. We've been talking about how this would shake out, not only in terms of audience response and filmmakers talking about wanting their movies in theaters first, but we also saw the other half of that conversation happen when a star of a big film that had a financial stake in this production saying, hey, wait a minute, you're making a decision that hurts my bottom line. That lawsuit being, I believe, one of the biggest stories of 2021 when we talk about theatrical exhibition, even though there was no part of exhibition involved in that dispute. And that's something that, that really says loud and clear to me. I mean, we have always seen the headlines and we've seen more of them over these past two years. Oh, the cinema industry is dead. Blah, 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 whatever. Stories exactly like the Scarlett Johansson story show why that's not true. Building on that, I absolutely loved when the Wall Street Journal ran an opinion piece by columnist Peggy Noonan saying that the cinema experience was dead. On December 16th, a day before the record-breaking debut of Spider-Man No Way Home, making these people look like the clowns they are when they talk about things they don't know about. Uh, you know, it, it, it was something I enjoyed. I don't know if there was an editor there involved in making that decision, but, uh, but we do appreciate the, uh, the assist there for, uh, for the good laugh. Talking about Spider-Man No Way Home, I think this was one of the obvious big stories of the year. And it's something that our colleague Sean Robbins wanted to bring up as his top movie going experience of 2021. So I wanted to real quick bring in this clip that Sean recorded ahead of time talking about his favorite movie going experiences in 2021. You know, it's a harder question to answer this year. I'm just glad that I have uh, some movie going memories to pick from, <laughs> to be honest. I think the freshest is Spider-Man, of course. Uh, that's going to be near the top of my list for a long time to come, not just for the movie, but the the crowd experience. But I, I also include things like Free Guy. I think that seeing that at the end of summer was another one of those feel-good movies that I just was laughing at the entire time, and it felt good to do that in a theater with an audience. A Quiet Place Part Two, which to this day is, you know, after seven months, I think it still ranks as one of my all-time favorite horror sequels. Yeah, so many to pick from. James Bond, Dune, 
I'm picking all the big ones, of course. They're just kind of the first ones that come to mind. There are a lot that I still want to catch up on. I haven't had a chance to see Belfast yet, and I'm really looking forward to trying to see that over the holidays. It's it's really just kind of quite the turnaround from a year ago when we did this segment. And the biggest and best thing I could think of was finally getting a chance to see Inception on IMAX for the first time for its 10th anniversary release. And that was the big movie of the year for me. Uh, this year, obviously a bit more normal, and I really just can't wait for next year because it looks, you know, knock on wood, we're, we're going to kind of keep up this momentum and, and, and see a lot more normality return to, to releases. And uh, Daniel, that takes us through to uh, mid-December where we have, I think, chronologically the last major story to come out uh, in the theatrical exhibition community in 2021. Uh, that is the evolving and still not finished legal situation between Cineplex and Cineworld. Daniel, could you briefly recap what this story is and what happened in December? Because this is something that's been going on for a while and will continue to go on. Well, gosh, who knows how long, but it's not over yet. It's turning into this annual tradition for us here at Box Office Pro, where every December there's a massive headline involving Cineworld, the second largest movie theater circuit in the world. So a couple of years back, that headline being them taking over Regal, the second largest chain in North America, Cineworld coming into the U.S. and bringing with it a huge investment for premiums to the U.S. market. Regal came in, decided to go all in on 4DX immersive seating and ScreenX panoramic screens in a trend that we've been seeing over the years of premiumization in cinemas all over the country and all over the world. That was followed by a couple of years back, Cineworld announcing its intent to acquire Cineplex, the fourth largest circuit in North America and the largest circuit in Canada. Now, of course, that decision didn't turn out the way it was intended. There was a little pandemic that got in the way and Cineworld decided to abandon its plans to acquire Cineplex during 2020. In 2021, there was a big development in the ongoing legal fight trying to fit the broken pieces from that broken merger together with a judge in Canada awarding Cineplex nearly $1 billion in damages because of this huge decision. We don't know how this is going to play out. As I mentioned, there is an appeal underway, but I think whatever the decision ends up being in 2022 will have massive ripple effects when we talk about global screen counts between circuits and what the M&A environment is in this industry. My God, has 2021 been the craziest year for theatrical exhibition ever? With the AMC meme stuff in Cineplex, Cineworld, and oh, the pandemic. I mean, this year's been nuts. <laughs> it was a big cast of characters, a lot of plot twists that happened this year. But I can tell you a personal highlight as we look back into, as you mentioned, one of the craziest years working in this industry was the opportunity to see colleagues, friends, people we know in this industry after an exhausting fight to get movie theaters back open, an exhausting fight to re-engage with moviegoers, it was great to have that opportunity to meet in person in August. I leave 2021, as you mentioned, one of the craziest years you could have imagined on this job, with a very positive memory of that moment, a very low-key CinemaCon that I think meant a lot to all of us that could make it. Absolutely, Daniel, and uh, definitely looking forward to uh, to CinemaCon 
2022 in April. Looking forward to the regional shows coming back. Uh, looking forward to continuing that two steps forward, one step back version of recovery that we've gotten so used to. Ready for another year of fighting, another year of success. You know, I think this uh, this year, as we look back on it, we'll, we'll come up with a final numbers in next week's podcast. We're a little bit over $4 billion at the domestic box office. You compare that to the $2 billion from last year, it's a big step forward. It looks like we might end up falling short of that $5 billion benchmark that I know a number of circuits mentioned during investor calls as a sort of cap that they were looking at in 2021. The big question in 2022, as we all gear up for another exciting year in this industry, is where can we go from here? Personally, I think there's still a lot of room for growth. I think we're going to be going off of the momentum of Spider-Man No Way Home. And we're in a position right now as an industry to be able to optimize movie-going experiences even when there are concerns and new variants underway around the world. Yeah, absolutely, Daniel. And, and we will still be here as, as well as the rest of the uh, Box Office podcast team to uh, track the stories, the challenges, the opportunities. And uh, I think my favorite subject just Doing, theaters doing interesting things. Uh, we will be tracking all that uh, throughout 2022 and hopefully beyond. And, and, and that's really something that we could not do um, without the listeners who have tuned in over, over these past uh, two years. Daniel, uh, neither of us entered into 2020 thinking that we would become podcasters. Certainly, I don't think that cracks the, the top five of the weirdest of the, the most unexpected things in 2020, but it's definitely, you know, somewhere on the list. So uh, really, just from the bottom of my heart, thanks to everyone who's listened uh, to this podcast. It really does mean a lot. And we are starting 2022 with a right foot forward with an interview with Mark Cerati, looking back on his tenure as CEO of Cinemark, the third largest circuit in the United States. That's an interview from Rebecca Pauly coming next week from Rebecca, myself, and the entire family here at Box Office Pro and the Box Office Company. Thank you again for listening and for your ongoing support. The Box Office Podcast is produced in collaboration between Box Office Pro, the Box Office Company, and Record Edit Podcast. Please go on to your podcast network of choice and rate and review, subscribe, all that good stuff. And again, thank you for listening and have a happy new year. Mm -hmm.